Overseas, Russia's Ministry of Defence says 63 of its soldiers were killed in an attack by Ukrainian forces on New Year's Eve. The strike destroyed a vocational school near the city of Makivka in the Donetsk region. Ukraine's army says it's establishing how many occupying soldiers were killed. Earlier, it talked of about 400 dead. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg reports from Moscow. It is extremely rare for battlefield casualties to be confirmed by Moscow. The Russian army's spokesman announced that as a result of a strike by four rockets from a US-made HIMARS system, 63 Russian soldiers were killed. The rockets, he said, hit a temporary deployment point. Many of the soldiers there are believed to have been mobilised troops, drafted recently into the army. There was anger online. Russian military bloggers questioned the decision by commanders to station so many military personnel in one location. The Vatican says at least 65,000 people have filed past the body of the Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, on the first day of his lying in state at St Peter's Basilica. The former pontiff will be buried in the crypt on Thursday. The BBC's Bethany Bell reports. Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy, the choir sang, as the body of former Pope Benedict was carried into St Peter's Basilica. The body was placed in front of the main altar, dressed in vestments of red and gold, with a crucifix in his hands. Benedict's secretary and household staff sat close by as prayers were said. The Italian president, Sergio Mattarella, was among those who came to pay their respects. And the British Medical Association, the professional body and trade union for doctors, says the survival of Britain's health service is on a knife edge and has urged the government to act. The chair of the BMA, Philip Bamfield, amplified recent warnings about delays in emergency care, saying patients were dying needlessly because of a political choice. And that's the news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, I'm Nate Pylock, and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Andrew Work, here to kick off the new year. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong, and this city is girding its investment loins to take on 2023. Buy low, and that's how the markets finished last year. Now, no need to tell regular Money Talkers that 2022 was a turkey, and no amount of good news here and there could counter the tide of rising interest rates unleashed to tame inflation. That water will continue to rise until central bankers feel inflation is really under control. The war in Europe didn't help unless you were concentrated in energy stocks, up 59% on the year. More annual market review in our roundup, but first, some good with the bad news to kick off what will hopefully be a better 2023. Tesla stock is down lately, but just reported an annual growth of 40% in deliveries. It started production in Austin and Brandenburg this year and amped up production in Fremont and Shanghai. The downside? Uh, the 1.31 million deliveries are slightly lower than targeted by analysts, and shares are down 45% in the past six months. New data out of China shows housing prices down in September, down 0.8% in 100 cities sampled. They dropped in 68 of the 100 cities sampled. That's the sixth straight month of decline. Locally, Hong Kong home sales are at their lowest level since 2008. But some good news for Croatia. The European Union's youngest member joined both the EU's border-free Schengen zone and the euro common currency. The passport-free travel puts it ahead of Bulgaria and Romania. Congratulations to Croatia. 
And uh, getting the goods on the year ahead today, we are joined by Samuel Faveur, the Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital for the first part of the show. Then, looking north, we'll get the view from Japan from William Pesek, a, Toronto, uh, a Tokyo-based journalist and author. Now, for 2023, two easy resolutions to make your new year a winner. Number one, follow Money Talk on Facebook. And number two, follow Money Talk on Twitter. We have previews and summaries on our Facebook page. And regular host Peter Lewis does his sharing on Twitter. So get Twitter, one word, at Money Talk Radio 3, and you'll see Peter Lewis's smiling face there. His voice will be back in the year of the rabbit on Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, our first market round for the year. We are looking at the market close last year. Yes, last year. And traders were up and down heading into their New Year parties. In America, the Dow finished down 73 points to close above 33,147. The S&P dropped 0.25%, and the NASDAQ lost 0.11%. After three years on the up, uh, the S&P lost almost 20%, uh, and the Dow did comparatively well, losing only 8.8%, but the NASDAQ was the big loser, losing 33% of its value. Q2 was the best of the, wor- the worst of it, and Q4 the best last year. The TSX in Toronto finished the year down 0.5% on the last day trading, down only 8.66% on the year, less than the major American bourses. European shares were actually a little perky heading into the new year, with the pan-European stock index up 0.8% on encouraging news from consumer, luxury, and automobile parts companies. The French and Italian houses uh, were both up almost 2%, and the DAX was up 1%. The FTSE 100 was in reverse mode, dropping 0.8% in one-day trading, but 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 bucked the annualized trend and was up 1.8% in the year. It was lifted by energy and mining stocks. BA Systems, a defense contractor, was up 55% on the year to take the top spot. I wonder why. Hmm. The stock 600, by contrast, is down 13% since the market opened in January 2022. Asian markets were likewise upbeat on the last day of trading for most. Uh, locally, the Hang Seng was up 0.5%, and the Shenzhen component was up 0.3%. The Shanghai Composite was up 0.6%. The Nikkei 225 was flat, but the Aussies were up 0.26%, ready to put Santa on the Barbie on the beach, or however they do it, down under. The oil and gas sector was a heck of a ride in 2022, given the Russo-Ukraine war. The peak was over $139 a barrel of Brent, but it finished the year at 85.91 a barrel, up 3%, with West Texas trailing at 803 Fun fact, Americans are ramping up production with oil and gas rigs. Uh, Their oil and gas rig counts are up 33% on the year. So drill, baby, drill, and pump, baby, pump. Gold is sitting at over $1,818 an ounce, with futures slightly higher. Silver fell 0.4%. Platinum picked up 0.9%, and palladium shed 1.6%. Looking at bonds, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield and U.K. bond yields are up slightly, while the Japanese, French, and German bonds all fell on the last day of trading. There is a bit of a breaking story on the Bank of Japan making unplanned bond purchases, so keep an eye on that. Looking at my Forex charts, the US dollar is up against major trading currencies at the end of the year. The US dollar index is up over 8%, its best year since 2015. But a slowdown in rising rates slowed it in Q4 and it lost 7% in the last quarter. Hong Kong travelers know the yen is way down this year, losing 13%. The offshore yuan is down nearly 9% on the year, and the Kiwi and New Zealand dollars are down 7% year-to-date. 
But we are looking at the future and we're looking at today. The Nikkei seems to be trending upwards, but the Australian, two, the SX200 is dropping a bit. Uh, Bitcoin uh, is up 0.7% in 24-hour trading and Ethereum is up 1.39%. Of course, the crypto winter arrived like a bombogenesis cyclone from the Terra Luna crash to the FTX wipeout. Bitcoin currently sits at $16,733, down from over 47000 at the start of the year. Locally, the Hong Kong Futures Index ah, looking to be down a little bit, maybe down 1%, according to forecasts. And that is your market roundup. All right, we welcome our first guest of the year. It is Samuel Faveur, the Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Uh, bienvenue et bonne année. Merci, Andrew. Um, happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. Great to have you on the show. Um, you know, of course, uh, the big the big story last year that influenced everything was inflation, and then the in, you know the rising interest rates. Uh, you know that for years we've had this weird disjoint in the market where. You know, even when uh, with COVID markets, you know, economies were cratering and yet markets were up. And now uh, it seems like the reverse is happening. Uh, looking ahead, what's your take on where we're going? Well, I think we'll still have a bit of a tightening because we're not done yet. But we have seen some positive signs coming out of the U.S. in terms of uh, expectations coming off. So we should see another cycles, I think, for the next six months. But we are seeing some signs of stabilization, which is pretty positive for the US markets and by by effect to the uh, to the Hong Kong market because of the peg. Now that's specifically for the US, I think for Europe they are behind the curve. So they will tighten up more. There's still high inflation. They're still, you know, linked to this uh, Ukrainian war and the uh, commodities and gas inflation. So Europe is a different story. And China has an independent monetary policy and it's likely to loosen a bit more given the current situation. So Overall, I think we are going to start to see some divergence uh, in terms of interest rate plays in the world. Yeah, and I mean, for, for, uh, for the market, you mentioned the war, and of course that's having an impact, but for central bankers, is it, is it what's happening with the war in Europe, or there, is it a bigger picture they're looking at? And, I, and I'm wondering how much of a, a war factor is already priced into the market? I mean, where, where, which is the bigger influence? Well, the biggest influence is expectations. So in Europe, it's still climbing pretty aggressively. So they still have to tighten. They don't have a lot of leverage. They started the tightening cycle six months after the Fed. So they have to continue. There's no doubt about this. Um, for the rest of the world, now they can start to, to, to look ahead and see how things are going to stabilize. So I think in Hong Kong, for instance, it's uh, starting to look pretty good in terms of uh, situation. We've got COVID starting to fade out, borders reopening, monetary policy starting to, to, to you know, stabilize and maybe come down at the end of the year. So we're looking pretty good in terms of equities uh, in Hong Kong. So, I mean, if the, so for, there's equities and uh, the property markets both impacted by uh, interest rates. Where do you see things going on, on those? Because I mean, Hong Kong housing starts, I think I noted in the opening, were, were their worst in years. Uh, can we expect some improvement on that front? I think it's too early for improvement in, uh, in the housing markets because, first of all, the interest rates are likely to stay quite high. Uh, we have quite a lot of leverage. And the second issue is the supply and demand. So we had very lackluster demand from the housing market with, with the population declining. So domestic demand falling. Now the question whether Chinese uh, demand will, Chinese mainland demand will start to pick up and start to uh, buoy the market again. I think it's very early and very premature to, uh, to bet on that. 
Mm. Could there be a divergence? I mean, could we see Hong Kong take off faster than China, or is it is it just you know if the border if the border opens, Hong Kong is is doing well, and maybe China not so much? I mean, how do you see that playing out? I think culturally, uh, Hong Kong is a lot better place than China. Uh, said monetary is uh, is one factor. Then obviously it's a lot more open. So China reopening will have a much bigger factor on on Hong Kong than obviously on China. China has a lot of issues uh, to deal with. The first one is most, I think, most and foremost is the confidence issue domestically and internationally. I mean, we started to see uh, delocalization from China before COVID, and it's accelerated during COVID. So I think this is a long term trend. A long term trend. So. In China, you have those two next two to three months where you have COVID, you have to deal with it, but that will pass. So again, you will see a speak up in demand, but long-term structurally, you have this confidence, you have this over leverage at the local government level, which is going to have an impact. So uh, I think China is looking cautiously optimistic and I would uh, much favor uh, Hong Kong at this stage compared to China. Mm, I mean, uh, you know, for, for we t- people talk about the border opening and China opening, um, China saying, okay, everything's back, everybody go back to business. But I mean, in terms of consumer spending, uh, what I'm hearing from people up there is if people are like, yeah, great, I'm not leaving my house, forget it. I mean, uh, they're allowed to go out, they just don't want to. Well, I think you saw that in, in most of the countries. I mean, there's been a change in the uh, social perception of work everywhere mm. after COVID. People have uh, reassessed their priorities and on China, it's going to be the same. So as I said, it's going to be a confidence issue. It's going to be able to restore that confidence. And China is also facing the headwinds of international demand because people have been reassessing their supply chains. And uh, we saw it at the end of last year with Apple as, as uh, this main headline. But it's been something which has been going on for the last you know, three to four years quite aggressively. So mm-hmm. they really have to start uh, bringing optimism back and confidence back. And that's going to be a very, very difficult task after all the policy mishaps that we've seen. Right. And, uh, you know, looking across, you know, looking at China and the U.S., I mean, for a while it was people were like, you know, China is going to become the biggest economy in the world, you know, this year, maybe next year, maybe they're already there. Uh, It seems like those two are diverging now, Uh, you know, given the U.S. has had negative growth and and the U.S. has kind of been doing okay. What's your take on the U.S. for the next year? Well, the U.S. should be fairly okay. The, uh, The big uncertainty, I think, in the U.S. is going to be the housing market again as well. Uh, that potentially could have a uh, credit effect, uh, which could be negative. But there is a lot more visibility on the uh, U.S. economy. And the U.S. economy is also a lot more uh, bottom-up, so it's a lot more resilient. Uh, If you have a top-down drive, then once you are embarked in a in a wrong way, it's a lot more difficult to turn around, whereas in the economy, it's a lot more from the ground up. And Hong Kong, to some extent, is a lot like this as well. Hmm. So for the U.S., does that, does that suggest if you're looking at the U.S. market, should you be getting more involved with companies that are primarily domestic focused or, you know, the, other, the flip side of that would be American companies that get a significant amount of the revenue from, uh, you know, from, from a broader global reach? Which of those should you focus on more? The the ones that were domestic. I, I, I think you should focus on value. Uh, that's exactly what has been the rebalancing. And with money starting to cost something, you have to focus where the value, where the close companies are creating value. Uh, so domestic, I think, is pretty good. But internationally, it will be good as well, as long as it's value oriented. I mean, we've seen the whole repricing in the internet sector. We've seen the repricing on Tesla. Cash now has some value, so you cannot just burn cash as you used to, as you could like the last ten years. People will start to price that in equity and put value on it. Hmm. I, I mean, specific sectors. You know, looking at tech, I think in twenty twenty one there were over sixty billion dollar plus IPOs. Last year there was one. 
that I think was a was an was it an Intel spinoff? And I mean, uh, and then there wasn't even another one over a hundred million dollars. Where do you think we're going to go on that? Are we are we going to have another terrible year like twenty twenty two? Probably not a blowout like twenty twenty one, but somewhere in between? I think it's going to be somewhere in between because we're going to see repricing in terms of valuations, uh, a lot more reasonable compared to where they were. And we've seen that on the uh, private equity secondary markets where we've seen some repricing. Um, And again, people now are not just going blind into uh, anything which is going up because it costs now to borrow money. So technology is where the innovation is. So you will see some equity pick up. The question is at what price and how much more time we need for this balancing to, to happen. I think we're pretty close, actually, to the, uh, to the end of the rebalancing of technology. Okay, and if, uh, <laughs> Paul, if, if, if we have some more black swans flying around, where are they going to land? Where, where do you see some, some potential for, for risks that could have a significant impact on the markets? I think if you look uh, geographically or regionally, we have some potential risk, uh, credit risk in China. Uh, local governments or SOEs uh, starting to put pressure on the whole monetary system. That's something which is not transparent and uh, being stretched more and more has been stretched a lot with this COVID, uh, you know, COVID, COVID plan. Uh, so I think there's a huge risk there. I mean, the, the hotspots in the region are well known, like Taiwan is well known. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, it wouldn't necessarily be a black swan. I'm always most concerned by a credit event that uh, people haven't forecast. Uh, as I said, there could be some some kind of, a, I wouldn't say generalized, but localized housing crisis in the US, which could happen. Mm-hmm. And then you could have some developments in Europe as well. Who knows uh, what could happen in Europe? Yeah, I mean, about a year ago, people were saying that student debt in the United States was going to be the next, that was the big risk that was going to bring, uh, you know, another 2008. And then Biden had his forgive everybody's debt program, whatever people think of that. Uh, and then it looks like he's not, you know, there's legal challenges to that, so it might not happen. Is, is that a potential risk that you're looking at? Is that, or have people kind of forgotten about that now? I, I think it's not a short-term risk. It's more like the uh, amount of weight of debt that is going to wait on the future economy. So usually a black swan is something you don't see it coming. So these kind of events are already, already there, to some extent priced in the market. Hmm. And how, how about policy risks from governments making a major change? I mean, you know, last year we had uh, Liz Trust and her chance, short-lived chance with the Exchequer that kind of like, uh, you know, did a number on the British economy and, and markets for a bit. I mean, the maybe the Italian, uh, the new government in Italy. Are there any policy risks out there that you're keeping an eye out for? Well, there's a lot of policy risks in Europe. I mean, it seems like everybody in Europe at the moment is running its own uh, agenda without any kind of consultation. So, you know, Italy, France, Germany, uh, UK, I mean... They've been making lots of mistakes. I wouldn't be surprised we see some dumb things uh, happening there as well. Uh, U.S. is going to be pretty much locked, so I don't expect too much of a political risk there. And then you've got the region here, uh, China and Taiwan, which could be another issue. Okay. Well, we're going to have to keep an eye out for that. We'll definitely have to have you back on the show for more of these, uh, these insights. Merci encore, Samuel Faveur, Chief Investment Officer from Mandarin Capital. All right, we take the Money Talk gaze and turn it north to Tokyo, and we welcome William Pesek, who is a Tokyo-based journalist and author. William, good morning. Good morning, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Um, William, all right, let's get into it. Uh, you know, we're taking a look at the year ahead. I mean, well, first of all, tell you what, give me, give me your, your quick take on 2022 uh, for Japan and the Japanese economy, is there is there a big is there kind of like one big takeaway that we can get to think about how things went? 
Well, it's really all about uh, China and the yen, isn't it? I mean, basically, uh, when it came to 2022, uh, Japan's economy was very much about yen gyrations. You know, is the yen too weak? Is the yen too strong? Um, it ended the year somewhere in between. It relied a lot on Chinese demand, and I think for 2020, you know, 2023, it's going to be all about China uh, and the Bank of Japan once again. The BOJ is getting a new governor come March. We have no idea at all who that might be. And, you know, China is anyone's guess at this point. Is China going to boom in the year ahead? Is it going to, you know, re revert to, to lockdowns as COVID numbers explode? Will China, will, you know, will China increase global inflation in the year ahead, demand push inflation and cost pull inflation? Um, it really is a matter of China and the BOJ. Hmm. I'll tell you, I want to talk more about the BOJ, but first on this, this China-Japan, I mean, uh, U.S. and Europe, I mean, how much influence do they have? You're, you're talking like they're, they're, they don't really matter all that much, or what role do they play? Well, I mean, certainly there's a lot of concern here in Japan about the U.S. Uh, recession in the year ahead. You know, this is the most aggressive Fed tightening we've seen since the mid-1990s, and there is a lot of concern that the residual effects uh, of that will push the U.S. into recession. And, of course, that would be a, a very dark moment uh, for Japan, which is you know, Japan likes to think of itself as a, increasingly a service-based economy, but it still is very export-reliant. So if the U.S. does, you know, sort of uh, slide into recession in the year ahead, that would not be what Japan wants. And, you know, certainly Europe is, is walking in place at best, right? I don't think there's a lot of optimism here that Europe will experience steady growth in the year ahead. So I think when you look at the external scene for Japan, things don't look terribly optimistic in the year ahead. That said, if China is opening up as President Xi Jinping claims, and we do see, you know, tens of thousands of, well, I would say at this point we see millions of Chinese tourists coming Japan's way, that certainly would change the calculus for Japan in the months ahead. But of course, then you'd have to worry about COVID numbers here perking up. So, I, I, you know, I think every year we like to say, well, the year ahead will be incredibly uncertain. And we think that the, the year that just passed was the craziest possible. But I really do think that 2023 for, for North Asia and Japan is really a, a rather uncertain moment, even more so than the beginning of 2022, I'd say. Even more so, huh? And that's <laughs> pretty pretty strong stuff given given what we've been through uh, in in the yeah. past year. I mean, if if uh, you know you talk about Chinese tourists coming, would you expect that to happen in the first two quarters of the year, the first half of the year? Because I mean, right now everyone's like, "Hey, China, people can go out again," and now we don't want them. <laughs> I mean, not strictly speaking, but <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. go governments are putting on restrictions because they're worried about COVID. I've got a daughter trying to fly back to Canada yeah. this week, and she's all worried about her PCR test. I mean, is Japan going to let them in? Well, you know, I just returned from the U.S. a few days ago. I was there for Christmas. Um, and even for me, as someone who lives here, getting back into Japan is quite a hassle in terms of the, the documentation you need and the different checks and balances at the airport. But I think, you know, Japan has been very cautious in the COVID era, and I think they will remain cautious with the, re the return of Chinese tourists. So Japan is trying to walk this very interesting balancing act where Prime Minister Kishida knows that the economy needs you know, the return of the Chinese tourists and the return of the return of Chinese demand, um, but it also doesn't want to a, a new COVID flare-up in the months ahead. So it is going to be this interesting balancing act for the government going forward. But I do think you know you do see that the kinds of bookings you're seeing from travel agencies, from from online travel companies, there is a wave of tourism coming back to Japan. I mean, when you go to say cities like Kyoto, 
um, you do see the return of, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of Mandarin being spoken. That's mostly the Taiwanese tourists. But mm. you are seeing more, you know, more South Koreans coming in, more Southeast Asians coming. So the tourism is returning here. It's just a matter of, um, you know, how well Japan can balance public health and economic considerations. It's quite a challenge. I know, I know Naseko is, I think, still loaded up with Hong Kong skiers up there right now. Um, uh, you know, you said, you, see, you said, Nalina, turning to the Bank of Japan, I mean, this is one decision the government does get to make, is who will be the next governor. And you said earlier, we have no idea, but when you say we have no idea, you mean like of the leading candidates? Because I, I understand that you've got uh, the current deputy governor, Masayashi Ana Amamiya, is is leading with the former deputy governor uh, Hiroshi Nakaso. So I mean, a couple of names, but I, those guys would have very different approaches, wouldn't they? If it was one of those two. Well, you know, uh, Governor Kuroda came into the BOJ from the outside, and there's a lot of speculation that we will see a kind of dark horse candidate emerge in the weeks and months ahead. The next BOJ leader couldn't be someone from the outside. You know, I think for Prime Minister Kishida, a lot rides on this because. You know, as you, as you mentioned a moment ago, the BOJ has, you know, veered in a different direction over the last month, and the yen has skyrocketed because of that. So for the prime minister, it's going to be a very interesting choice to figure out where the BOJ goes next. But there is a lot of talk about there being some outside candidate that we're not talking about at the moment. And the question really is, you know, the BOJ is an independent central bank, but it isn't as independent as, say, the Federal Reserve. And the question is, will Kashida ask for some, you know, some would propose, if you will, from the new government, uh, for the new governor, rather, you know, don't don't taper too much, don't tighten too much. Uh, basically, think about the economy over central bank considerations, over monetary policy considerations. It really is a, a bit of a question mark mm. at this point. And of course, the yen, does the yen go to 150 this year? Does the yen go to 100 this year? No one can say at this point. Mm. And outside, you mean really outside? Like, are we talking Mark Carney going to the Bank of England, you know, <laughs> outside? No, no, I don't, I don't think it, it wouldn't be a non-Japanese. But, you know, basically, Kuroda came from the Ministry of Finance um, framework. He also had been at the Asian Development Bank for seven years before coming back to Tokyo to become BOJ governor. So, you know, there are a variety of, of candidates um, at the, the Ministry of Finance level, you know, former the Ministry of Finance officials that might be worth considering. I would love to see a female governor, right? I mean, Japan keeps talking about the need to empower the female workforce, womenomics and all that. It's more talk than action. A female central bank governor would be an incredible step in the right direction, I would argue. Are there any outstanding uh, women economists who might fit the bill? Well, at the moment, you know, there, there is no one that I, I can name off the top of my head. But again, um, there are some female senior female staff um, at, say, the, the Bank of Japan uh, headquarters in Osaka and Yokohama. That might be worth a look. But if you're looking to set, basically set a new tone in the year ahead and to argue that you know, we need to empower the female workforce, that will be a great step in the right direction, I think. All right, William uh, Pesek, you've got your homework for the next time you're on the show. Find us a female economist who could lead the bank. Indeed. Japan. Thank you very much for coming on the very first Money Talk of the Year. That's William Pesek, a, uh, our Tokyo-based journalist and author. Domo arigato. Listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, people, look at how is the year going. Uh, still looking like the Nikkei uh, is up, but the Kospi and Seoul and the Australian Stock Exchange are, are feeling a little bit down. But Bitcoin and Ethereum are trending up at the moment. Hong Kong Futures Index uh, predicting a minus 209 points, or about 1%. 
Something to keep an eye out for there. I want to thank my producer, Christy Lai, and our sound man, Tsung uh, Wing Ming. Uh, coming up next, we want you to stay tuned for Danny Giddings hard charging on Bowen Road last night. Getting fit for the new year. He's going to be joined by Jenny Lamb on Back Chat. Uh, tomorrow is uh, I'm Out and James Ross is in. We're both subbing in for the man Peter Lewis. Looking at your weather for today, mainly cloudy, cool with one or two light rain patches. So you might need a small umbrella, but maybe some sun later in the day. Max temperature of around 19 degrees. Your current temperature is 16 degrees Celsius, 70% humidity. And this is your first of the year money talk. The time is now 8.31 and the news with Todd Harding. A study has found that up to 26 billion pieces of microplastic, fragments of plastic shorter than 5 millimetres, are discharged into the ocean by sewage treatment facilities every day, seriously damaging the local marine ecosystem. City University says this occurs even after the treatment process removes most of the pollutants. The study found that storm drains are also discharging microplastics into the ocean. The university's professor Kenneth Lerng says while the government should create treatment facilities to filter drain water, the public can also help. As we find that the dominant form of microplastic is microfibers associated with laundry. So I think everyone can do at home is by putting a filter system, simple laundry bed, at the end of the discharge pipe from the washing machine. Those can remove a lot of microplastic already before the water being discharged into this sewage system. Hong Kong Disneyland says it will hire 600 more frontline staff next month as the SAR opens its doors again to inbound travellers. The theme park has been in the red for seven years now and it's hoping the easing of social distancing measures will help bring the magic back in 2023. The theme park's managing director, Michael Moriarty, says the return of visitors is key for the park's profitability. We've won the hearts and minds of Hong Kongers and they're showing us by choosing us. Right? But the reality of this investment or this resort as an investment is that you know we need inbound tourism to resume and to be at historical levels. We really need that to have a return to profitability. Russia's Ministry of Defense says 63 of its soldiers were killed in an attack by Ukrainian forces. The strike took place on New Year's Eve. Igor Konoshenkov is the ministry spokesman. The Kyiv regime struck a Russian deployment point near Makivka with six rockets of the US-made HIMARS multiple launch rocket system. As a result, 63 Russian servicemen were killed. Relatives and friends of the deceased soldiers will be provided with all the necessary assistance and support. Ukraine's army says it's establishing how many occupying soldiers were killed. Earlier, it talked of about 400 dead. The Vatican says at least 65,000 people have filed past the body of the Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI on the first day of his lying in state at St Peter's Basilica. The former pontiff will be buried in the crypt on Thursday. The BBC's Bethany Bell reports. Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy, the choir sang, as the body of former Pope Benedict was carried into St Peter's Basilica. The body was placed in front of the main altar, dressed in vestments of red and gold, with a crucifix in his hands. Benedict's secretary and household staff sat close by as prayers were said. 
the Italian president Sergio Mattarella was among those who came to pay their respects. And Brazilians have been saying farewell to the football legend Pelé in a 24-hour wake in the stadium of his former club Santos. His coffin was placed in the middle of the pitch at the Villa Belmiro Stadium for fans and dignitaries to pay their respects ahead of a private family burial later.